Good morning. Good morning. Won't you share with a friend or two? Good morning. Good morning. And many more. Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host today, Shantae Charles. I hope that you're having a great and wonderful day. I'm going to be very, very honest with you. I had a really early morning class this morning, and I wanted to, after that class, I just wanted to get back in bed and get under my covers and uh, not get back up until my next class, which is a little later after this course here. But I said, you know what? I really enjoy reading aloud and talking and sharing. And I really want to keep my commitment to do that. But sometimes the body wants other things. So I have to just recognize that, that that is a part of my humanity, right? I wasn't exhausted. Um, my class went well. For, I, for It's been a while since I've had a group of students that was actually um, fully engaged and fully present and very super respectful and they were middle schoolers you know seventh graders that age where everybody talks about how moody middle schoolers can be well i had a wonderful group of students this morning so i want to say hats off to sophie addison and josiah which of course is a name that's close to my heart. Um, if you know anything about my book series, you have to read my book series to understand uh, that name that's very close to my heart. But today, and good morning uh, to those of you who are coming in. But today we are going to be back reading Set Boundaries, Find Peace, A Guide to Reclaiming Yourself and Drama Free. A Guide to Managing Unhealthy Family Relationships. Before we get into that, I did have a question that was messaged to me and someone was asking about my hair and they noticed, you know, that I'm starting to get some grays, but they also noticed, and I've been getting gray hair for a while, um, actually some of my gray hair has been coming out as of late and uh, re-darkening. I found out that gray hair is simply a loss of melanin. That's all gray hair is. Did you know that? I found that out. Um, so there could be there could be times where your hair can darken or your hair can gray, depending on that. So your hair sometimes your hair doesn't always stay the same level of gray. But back to what I was saying. So they asked me, was there any um, particular products that I was using um, that was kind of helping me with my hair and with um, my shine? Well, most of you who've been following my podcast know that occasionally I've talked about some of my health issues, one of them being um, iron deficiency, 
And one of the things that iron deficiency can cause is hair loss. So I have gone through some periods where I have lost hair and I've had to um, trim my hair down um, and, you know, give it time to grow back. Um, another issue that I'm dealing with now with um, perimenopause starting to kick in is hair scalp itchiness. Um, there are some people when you are going through perimenopause where it feels like your scalp is on fire. Um, and especially if you wear your hair covered or you wear your hair tied, um, I tend to wear my hair in a satin, um, satin scarf at night. Um, and so the oil that I started using, um, is this oil here. It is called, it's from the company Silk Ele Elements. It comes in a little blue bottle and it has a dropper. And you really only need just a few drops directly onto your scalp. And this has been amazing with helping out with an itchy scalp. Um, and it's Silk Elements is the company. And it's just pure oils, argan oil. It's an oil with vitamins and essential fatty acids. It's ideal for hydrating your hair, for softening your hair, and for smoothing multi-textured hair. And I just put a, anytime I'm having a, a hair itch now, I just drop a little bit of it into the scalp area where my hair has been itching and the itching completely goes away. So I am super <laughs> excited for something that can soothe my scalp without me having to go for the comb and the brush and the pick and, you know, all of those different things. Again, the company is Silk Elements and it's 100% pure argan a-r-g-a-n argan oil i got this from sally's beauty supply but other stores may carry it now <laughs> let me get into setting boundaries finding peace we talked about we are going over the six types of boundaries we have covered so far physical boundaries sexual boundaries intellectual boundaries, emotional boundaries. And now we are going to cover the last two and then we're gonna move over to a very important conversation, um, trauma across generations in the other book. As I said, I didn't wanna start it last time because we didn't have a lot of time to get into it, but um, we're gonna have time today. So let's finish up the six types of boundaries Coming from the book, Set Boundaries, Find Peace. If you're reading a hardcover copy, I am on page 74. Material boundaries. Material boundaries have to do with your possessions. Your stuff is your stuff. If you decide to share your stuff, it's your choice. You also have the right to determine how others treat your possessions. If you loan a friend a tool in good condition, it's appropriate to expect the tool to be returned in the same shape. When people give you something back in worse condition, they violated your material boundaries. Now, I have a huge, huge, huge library. Um, I used to do just like a regular librarian would. I, had, I have cards in the back of um, some of my books, probably not the ones I have in my house right now. But I had library cards in the back of my books where I could check out a book 
and keep the card and you would take the other card. So I had a lending library. I've always had a lending library um, when it comes to my books. However, I noticed that certain people were never bringing my books back. They were never buying me a new copy. <laughs> they were just keeping my books. I have two people in my brain right now who have never brought my books back and I want my books back. <laughs> when I borrow books from people, and this particular person and I did a book swap. So I mailed them their book back and my book has not been on the way yet. So I'm probably going to message them and say, hey, um, are you done with the book? Can you mail my book back? But yeah, um, you have a right to determine how other people treat your possessions. And when you see that they don't have the same care that you have for your possessions, you have a right to pull back from sharing things with that particular person. I remember when, um, cause I do, I collect um, certain kinds of jewelry, um, costume jewelry, jewelry that has like precious stones in it. I have a couple of vintage pieces from my grandmother. And I remember when I finally organized all of my jewelry and I had bought these jewelry stands and I put up pictures online of my jewelry stands with all of my jewelry organized. My bracelets, a couple of necklaces, but mainly earrings, right? You guys often see me with earrings on here. I don't have any on today. But somebody came on my post and was like, oh, you need to, you need to give up some of those earrings. You need to give some of those away. And I was like, no, I don't because... Each one of these earrings means something to me. Each one of these earrings actually goes with something in my closet. <laughs> now, I can gift you a gift card to where I get my earrings from. I can even go buy you your own pair and gift them to you. But I'm not, I'm not giving away my earrings. That's not something that God is requiring of me. Now, if it was something, you know, where God says, hey, I want you to give this person this pair, then I would do it. And he knows I would do it because I've done it before. But for someone to just come on your page and think you have too much, you should give it away. Um, Ma'am, sir, I'm not going in your closet telling you what you have and what you should give away. That's a boundary violation. Unless I've asked you to come into my home and do an inventory of my items and what I should give away, you should probably keep that commentary to yourself. I'm just saying. Sometimes um, we don't recognize when we're violating people's boundaries by some of the things that we're saying. But again, this is one of those take a step back moments and ask yourself, and I've had to do this, is it necessary for me to say? Is that person asking me for my opinion? Are they just simply sharing what they have? And if I can't compliment it and move on, then the problem might be with me, not with the person, not with what they're sharing. The problem might be me overstepping my bounds while they're trying to share something. So it doesn't hurt to step back and ask yourself, am I violating a boundary. All right. Examples of material boundary violations. 
using things longer than the agreed on time frame. Somebody loaned you something and you said you're going to get it back to them in 30 days, 90 days, a year. And it's been five years and you've never gotten back to that person. You haven't returned their stuff. You haven't communicated. You haven't told them why you've held on to their stuff longer than you said. You haven't told them whether their stuff is still in good condition or not. Can you go fix that? Fix it. Just fix it. Okay? Just fix it. Never returning a borrowed item. As I said, I have lots of things that have been borrowed from me over the years and has never been returned. I'm not going to call names on this show. They know who they are. <laughs> Loaning borrowed items to others without permission. Oh, this was another one. This one here. Oh, after I got done reading your books. I gave them to somebody else. Really? So when do they plan on returning them? Oh, I don't know. Now I'm talking about books today, but it can be anything. You don't get the opportunity to loan out something that's been loaned to you, but people do this all the time. Damaging a possession and refusing to pay for it. And if you do damage something of someone's, understand that you're not paying them for what you think it's worth. You're paying them for what they think it's worth. And sometimes it can be the cost of the item plus the value they put on never getting that item back. For example, I would never do this, but I'm just, this is an example. You loan out a family vintage brooch that they're not making anymore. It's a one-of-a-kind thing. You either have it or you don't. And someone loses that brooch that you can never get back, that you've placed ancestral value on because it was given to you by someone in your family. You can decide the price of that because it's not just something that you can go and rebuy again at Walmart. It has value in the fact that it was vintage, that it was one of a kind, and it also has value because it was in, attached to someone in your generational line who might have given it to you. So you can't get upset if you damage someone's possession and they want you to pay more than what you quote unquote think it's worth. Okay. Because sometimes people are attaching sentimental value to whatever it is that's been damaged. Returning possessions in poor condition. Again, you might return it, but they still might ask you to give up something of monetary value to cover the fact that you returned it in poor condition and they might have to replace it. Setting a material boundary sounds like this. I will loan you money, but I expect the full amount back by Friday. Listen, and I think I've said this before. If people ask me to loan them money, I don't do loans of money anymore. Why? Because I don't want to be thinking about what you owe me. I just don't. I don't want that in my brain. 
I don't want to have to think about it. I just don't. That's how I am. That's how I feel about money. So if I can give it to you, I will give it to you. If I can't give you everything you're asking for, I can give you what I, I will give you what I can afford. But I don't want to do a loan because chances are if you needed a loan, you probably cannot afford to pay it back. That's the way I feel about money. Other people may have another philosophy. That's mine. If you needed the money, chances are you probably can't afford to pay it back. I can't loan my you my car this weekend. This is another setting material boundary. Be sure to return my tool in good condition. I can't loan you any money. You can borrow my suit, but if you stain it, you'll have to pay for dry cleaning. Here are a few ways to honor your material boundaries. One, do not loan things to people who've demonstrated that they will not respect your possessions. You don't want to get mad. You don't want to get upset. You don't want to feel like you're on the verge of cursing this person out. Do not loan things to people who demonstrated that they will not respect your possessions. And a good way to gauge that is how do they treat their own stuff? If you already know that they don't really take care of their own possessions, chances are they're not going to do a good job of taking care of yours. Number two, share your expectations for your possessions up front. Share your expectations for your possessions up front. If you just give somebody something and you say, oh, just just get it back to me when you can, knowing full well you need it returned in 30 days, you can't get upset when that person keeps your stuff for a year. Why? Because you did not communicate I need it back within 30 days. (laughs) So if you're loaning stuff out, be upfront with your requirements and be upfront with your timeline of when you need things back. Time boundaries. In my experience of the six areas listed, time is the boundary area that people tend to struggle with the most. Time boundaries consist of how you manage your time, how you allow others to use your time, how you deal with favor requests, and how you structure your free time. People with these issues struggle with work-life balance, self-care, and prioritizing their needs. Giving up your time to others is one significant way that you might violate your time boundaries. If you don't have time for something that you want to do, you don't have healthy boundaries with time. Now, this is super important. I think for me, out of all of these boundaries, probably time is the one that will get you deleted from my life faster than anything else. When you play with my time, I don't know what it is for me, but time is something that is a pet peeve. Um, showing up late to a meeting with me, pet peeve, (laughs) not being on time, pet peeve, wasting my time, pet peeve, 
not being considerate of my time. Pet peeve. Um, keeping me waiting when you know I have to be somewhere else. Pet peeve. Um, picking me up late when you've promised to get to me. Pet peeve. All of that. All I, I noticed that all of my pet peeves, a lot of them, probably about 98%, are centered around time. And when you waste my time, to me, that says that you don't value me because I value me and I value my time. Just telling you, that's, that's where I am. Mm-hmm. Examples of how we violate time boundaries and how they are violated by others. Calling multiple times in a row for non-emergencies. Sending me stuff to read. Because again, that takes time. That makes no sense. That I'm not interested in. Never have been interested in. Time boundary. Okay? Expecting someone to drop everything in order to provide help for you. Time boundary. Calling or sending text messages late when the recipient is sleeping. Now, I have been guilty of this. And I have had to rebuke myself. And I have had to say, I'm sorry. I send it late. I'm sorry. I was up. I couldn't sleep. I dropped this in your messenger. I dropped this in your text message. I was hoping you would not pick up your phone and look at it. I just wanted to send it to you in the middle of the night so I wouldn't forget because my ADHD be working overtime. <laughs> so I have apologized. Um, I'm trying to do better at that. Now I try to just send the messages to myself or send it to my email. And then when it's a reasonable time in the morning, then I will try to share it. But if I know I have friends that are up, they're usually up well in the middle of the night like I am. And it's not a boundary for them. It's not a boundary issue. I'll go ahead and send it. But I do know that's something that I need to improve. Because if I see something or I read something, I want to send it to the person but then I got to realize it's two o'clock in the morning. They're probably asleep. Unlike me. <laughs> Asking others to do things for free. Oh. As a business person, when someone asks me to do something for free, that they know that I do professionally, they either don't think that I do it well enough to get paid for it, or they think that I don't have bills to pay. It's got to be one of those two. One of those two. You either don't think I do this well enough to actually pay me for it, 
or you think that I don't have bills that I need to pay. I try not to ask anybody to do anything for free, especially if I know that that is their profession. That's their professional work. I want to, I want to, what's the one people love to say? I want to pick your brain. To pick my brain costs anywhere between $50 to $125 an hour. Just letting you know. To pick my brain. Now, if you're part of the We Dare Squad, you get to pick my brain quite a bit for a nominal monthly fee. But if you're not a part of the We Dare Squad, um, my professional fee, depending on what you're trying to pick my brain for, is between $50 to $125 an hour. And if you're late and I have to reschedule you, it's $150 an hour. Why? Because I have over 20 years of experience in what people are usually asking to pick my brain for. And I know that the information I'm going to give you, you're going to make at least, at least 10 times the amount I charge you per hour for the information I give you. Time, wisdom, experience, costs, money. So, Asking other people to do stuff for free that you know professionally is their work. It's it's how they earn their living. It's how they feed their family. It's how they pay their bills. That's a violation of time. Boundary. Here's another one. <clears throat> Over committing. I used to do this all the time. Probably about 15 years ago. I would overcommit. And when, when you overcommit, it's not necessarily that events are overlapping. It's the fact that you have um, left yourself with no time for yourself. Because all of your time is taken up serving other people and doing for other people. So that was a bad, bad habit that I had to deal with. And I couldn't get upset with anyone else because I was the one that was over committing my time everywhere. And then I had no time for myself or I had no time to do the things that I wanted to do. Or the time that I did have, I spent laying down, <laughs> not feeling well, recovering from all the over committing that I had been doing. Which again, I couldn't blame other people for. I had to take responsibility for that. Here's another one. Having long conversations with emotionally draining people. Requesting favors at a time when it's clear the other person isn't available. So here's some clues. Someone says, and this is, this is why I no longer announce. I used to announce when I was going on breaks, vacations, um, sabbatical, if someone is announcing that they're going on break, if someone is announcing that they're going on sabbatical, if someone is announcing that they're going on social media break, if they haven't left you information to get in touch with them in case there's an emergency, try to honor the fact that they are actually going on break. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. If someone is on vacation and it's not a medical emergency or someone important to their life has passed away, try to actually let them enjoy their break and their time away. Sometimes we don't know how much a person could need that mental break away from everything. Asking someone to stay late at work for no additional pay or come in early to work for no additional pay. Accepting favor requests from people who won't reciprocate. All of those are violations. Setting a time boundary sounds like this. I am unable to stay late today. I work from nine o'clock to five o'clock, so I'm not available to chat throughout the day. I can't help you this weekend. I can help you with your taxes, but my fee is $75. I won't be able to make your event on Tuesday. Here are a few ways to honor your time boundaries. Before you say yes to a request, check your calendar to make sure you're not overcommitting. Don't try to squeeze in another event or task or you'll be upset about doing so. And if you need to rest and people want to insist on inviting you to things that are either really late at night or really early in the morning and you actually need to rest, be okay with telling that person, hey, I appreciate what you're doing. I will share your event out. I will support your event financially if you know, there's an opportunity to support your event financially, but I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to be in attendance because I need to rest. That's it. Number two, when you're busy, allow calls to go to voicemail and text or emails to go unread until it's convenient for you to respond. I think one of the probably the biggest mistakes about email (laughs) unless there is some kind of way besides saying I'm away from my desk right now. I think the biggest issue with emails is especially coming from the workspace. I used to work somewhere and I'll just I'll just give my own experience. I used to work somewhere where the administration would send us emails between 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. They were really important emails, right? But by the time 7 a.m. rolls around, so many more emails had come in that you were not seeing the emails that they sent in the middle of the night, 5 a.m., 3 a.m., 2 a.m. So those emails that were important that would get pushed down by all the unimportant stuff that would come in right when you were coming to work. So you would have to spend hours, literally every week, trying to filter in and filter through what was important, what wasn't important. You're missing deadlines. You would get reamed out, um, fussed at for not missing an email, for missing an email that would come in five o'clock in the morning, but it would be pushed down by 25, 30, 40 other emails by the time you came in and checked your email. So it was one of those things where 
it's like, how do you expect people to keep up with what's important if you're putting it out there while people are asleep and then when they get to the office, there's 40 other emails on top of that. They're not seeing it. So we actually had to have a meeting about, can you send us emails during the time that we're at work? (laughs) And if it's really important, can you send the email about an hour before we are coming in so we can actually see what the important thing is first? Now, that actually improved for a while until that person went back to their habit of putting stuff at 11 p.m., midnight, 2 o'clock in the morning. But we tried, okay? So, when it's convenient for you to respond, try to do that and not let all of the emails overwhelm you. I know emails, I know people are fighting with their email box every single day. Some of us have 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, 6,000 unread emails because that's how many emails can come in. Um, A lot of us are fighting spam in our email, but just do the best that you can every single day. Try to empty some out every single day. Um, That's what I try to do. I try to set aside about 30 minutes every day where I go and I check spam, I clear my spam, um, I look at emails that are promo emails, I put them in trash, I empty the trash. So emails can be one of those things that is taxing on the brain, but you just got to figure out what kind of system you want to use and go through that system and try to delete what you don't need every single day. So she does have some exercises down here. I'm not going to go through all of them, um, but she's got some exercises and I'll just read you um, her, her examples and then her instructions. Instruction, grab your journal or a separate sheet of paper to complete the following exercise. When your boundaries are violated, it's critical to have a conversation about what happened and how you felt about it. Because we can't control others, we must focus on what we will say or what actions we can take if the violation is repeated. Below, you are gonna find examples of each type of boundary. Read the scenario and consider what you would do or say for each. I'll just give you the one for time. It says, you're under a critical deadline at work. One of your team members asks you for help on one of their projects. Consider what you would do or say to set a boundary in this scenario. You're under a deadline at work, but your team member is asking you for help on one of their projects. What do you do? That's a good question. I'll let you figure it out. All right, we're going to our second book. We are only starting this chapter today. So I'm just going to read the um, introduction. And then I will open it up for us to have some conversation. This is coming from Drama Free, the book Drama Free. And we are starting chapter five. If you are reading from the hard copy, This is page 62. Trauma across generations. Donald came from a long line of alcoholics. His grandfather, father, multiple uncles, and now himself. 
He had his first drink when he was just 12 years old. Being drunk was the only way Donald knew how to feel at ease and forget about the problems in his house. His family was so consumed in their own chaos that no one noticed until he was drinking daily by age 17. Donald had always found it difficult to connect with his father until they became drinking buddies. Suddenly, they bonded over their shared interests. After Donald's second wife threatened to leave him if he didn't get help, he started couples therapy with her. Unfortunately, he disagreed with his wife that he had a problem. He considered himself a functional drinker who financially took care of his responsibilities and drank only in the evenings and on weekends. He wasn't drunk all the time, like his father, or unemployed like his uncles. Donald was under the impression that he could stop whenever he wanted, but he didn't want to stop yet, even though it was causing problems for his family. His free time was spent drinking at his father's house or with his friends. In our sessions, he seemed to love his wife and the child they shared, but he found it hard to release his constant companion, alcohol. It wasn't until his wife made good on her threats and left their home with their child that Donald seriously started to explore his history and relationship with alcohol. He asked himself the following questions. How is alcohol impacting my life? What is my family history with alcohol misuse? What constitutes a problem with alcohol? Can I change my behavior with alcohol on my own or will I need support? How is alcohol helping me cope? Sometimes the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. In the book, Depression is Contagious, How the Most Common Mood Disorder is Spreading Around the World and How to Stop It, Michael Yopko, PhD, notes that children of depressed parents are three times more likely to develop depression themselves. Parents are models for their children and children pick up both their positive and negative qualities. When parents are preoccupied with managing the issues in their lives, they often leave their children to figure things out for themselves with little to no guidance. Many children with distracted parents suffer from chronic feelings of loneliness. For Donald, the only way to connect with his father was through drinking. Early in my career, I provided therapy to children and parents in the foster care system. The severity of abuse and parental compliance toward treatment determined whether children returned home or remained in foster care. On average, 39% of children removed from their homes have families with drug and alcohol problems. In many instances, the parents' abuse misuse issues are coupled with a history of trauma and untreated mental health problems, predominantly post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. People with symptoms of PTSD are three times more likely to abuse substances and one third of people with symptoms of depression are likely to misuse substances. Therapists working to help people with substance use disorders often treat family, coping trauma, and mental health problems. Children who grow up with parents who misuse substances often learn it as a coping strategy. In dysfunctional homes, chaos is frequently managed by misusing substances to numb or ignore emotional pain. So I know in my household, and again, I'm just going to talk about me because I don't need nobody lawsuits. <laughs> um, in my household, my mother um, was a drinker. Um, we have 
native ancestry. So my mom's um, ancestry is Cherokee and Blackfoot. And we didn't know it at the time. And I know I didn't know it at the time, but um, two of the, the largest problems in the native community is um, suicide, well, three, suicide, depression, and alcoholism. And so in our home, because of some of the things that my mom had been through in her own childhood, um, because of some of the things that we had gone through as children in the area of child sexual abuse, alcohol became a, a huge thing in our home. Now, she would have, I guess what they would call maybe like an alcohol cabinet. I don't know what they call those things. But anyway, it would have all the different kinds of alcohol in there. And she would not, you know, she never like locked the cabinet or anything like that. But she did let us try alcohol. And so I started drinking or having, you know, samples and shots of alcohol at 13. I continued to drink like I wasn't drinking something every day, but I was having shots of different things and trying out stuff and trying out wine coolers and vodka and whiskey and all this stuff up until about um, 16. And the only reason why I think for me, I realized that alcohol was a problem was my sweet 16 birthday party. I was having a pool party. My friends' um, parents had agreed to let me have their my party there because they had a pool. And um, I didn't really tell my friends that I was drinking. It was just something that I did at home. I didn't take it outside of my home. I wasn't like drinking at school or anything like that. But I was pretty used to having something to drink. So before my party, we were like getting ready, putting decorations up and all of that. And I was, and I decided that I was going to bring a pint of Jack Daniels with me. Now, up until this point, I had just been drinking, you know, little bits of alcohol, um, you know, maybe like less than a shot glass. But this day, for some reason, I decided that I was going to drink a pint of Jack Daniels. I drank the whole pint and I remember that I was like standing by the pool and my friend who was kind of helping us put stuff together, we were just kind of laughing and joking around and playing. And then all of a sudden she pushed me into the pool just in jest. Now they knew that I could swim. So I'm glad that she actually stayed there because had she just pushed me and ran off we would be having a different story but when she pushed me into the pool she noticed that I was not that I didn't come back up well I didn't come back up because I was intoxicated and I didn't realize that I was not breathing I didn't realize that I was at the I was at the bottom of a pool but I didn't realize that I was drowning. I remember standing at the bottom of the pool and looking at the water and saying, wow, this water is blue. It's, it's, it's really blue. It's, it's so blue. 
that was the last thing that I remembered. And then the next thing I remembered was somebody pressing on my stomach <laughs> and I was on the ground spitting up water next to the pool. And shortly after that, my mom arrived to the party, but she could have arrived to a party where I had accidentally drowned. And it was in that moment for me, that was what made me say, alcohol is not really for me. It's not, it's, it's, it's not my friend. Um, because I didn't realize how intoxicated I was. Not after I drank it and not when I was standing at the bottom of a pool. Um, and so when people say things like, I can, I can tell when I'm getting drunk or I can handle my liquor and all of this other stuff. I'm like, that may be true for you. But for me, um, I couldn't tell. And so to be out of my faculties to the point where I'm about to die <laughs> and I don't know that I'm about to die, that was enough for me to know that alcohol was not for me. Um, so I don't drink. <laughs> um, I have been drugged, but I don't drink. Um, I don't drink knowingly. I don't drink willingly. Um, I don't spike my drinks. I do drink uh, virgin daiquiris, but I don't drink alcohol beverages. Um, I don't drink play-play alcohol beverages either. So that's a little bit of my story. I'm going to open it up for some conversation. When we come back next week, we're going to talk about clinical criteria for substance use disorders. Clinical criteria for substance use disorders. All right. I want to thank those of you who have been listening by Google Play and Spotify. Thank you for allowing me to um, share part of my own story. If you are listening and you have some questions, you there is an option on Spotify that allows you to make commentary or ask questions. Feel free to utilize that. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, and I've been your host today, Shantae Charles. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so continue to go out and be light. Take care.